Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, we look to the U.S. Jobs Report as the Fed prepares to meet again in September. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to a reshuffle in the benchmark FTSE 100 Equity Index, with a well-known high street retailer set for a promotion. I'm Doug Krisner, looking at whether Japan's economy has made a major pivot. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington. There is a key hearing in former President Trump's 2020 election case. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Nathan Hager. We begin today's program with a look at the job market in the U.S. and what it could signal about more potential interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. And joining me now to talk about this, preview the August jobs report we've got coming up this Friday. Anna Wong is here with me, chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics. Anna, great to speak with you. And I want to start things off with what we heard from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, at the Jackson Hole Symposium this week. Of course, there was a lot of attention on the remarks about rates and how they could go even higher uh, to bring down inflation to the 2% target. But Powell also did discuss the labor market and the impact that tighter policies having on job growth. Here's just a bit of what Chairman Powell had to say. We expect this labor market rebalancing to continue. Evidence that the tightness in the labor market is no longer easing could also call for a monetary policy response. All right. So that brings me to you, Anna. What kind of tightness could we see in this August jobs report? Right. So so our team is still forecasting, is forecasting that uh, non-farm payroll will increase by about 185,000 jobs in August. Um, and it's a still it's 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 a slightly lower than uh, the the past month, but it is still very high relative to the kind of pace that would be consistent with the neutral temperature of the jobs market. So I think Powell in the past has cited a hundred thousand K per month as the neutral pace of job growth. So at 100 over 100,000 it is still greatly exceeding that number. But that said, I think what we heard in Powell's Jackson Hole speech is that 
it sounded like he does think the labor market is softening rather quickly. He mentioned that wage growth has eased, and and he said it in a pretty unambiguous right, way, right? And so next week's jobs report will come along with it. The average hourly earnings, we are expecting it to show also pretty uh, fast deceleration. I mean, despite all these news headlines recently talking about the wage negotiations from labor strikes, getting these like UP. Yes, drivers could be earning $170,000 in five years' time. The fact of the matter is the labor market has softened in, in the sense that people are more hesitant to quit their jobs. And also job openings have come down. But it's a, And oftentimes job openings stayed online, even though it's no longer being recruited. So the true degree of decline in job openings could actually even be, be larger than what the JOLTS number that we also will get next week will show. So I think all in all, a pretty positive case for why the Fed doesn't need to hike anymore. You know, Anna, I'm glad you brought up the strikes because this has been the summer of strikes with a lot of, you know, not just Hollywood, but some big name companies, really large companies like UPS getting these really big concessions when it comes to wages. Why do you think that's not having a read through into the broader wage pressure story that we're not necessarily seeing wages as a major component for inflation going forward here? In our forecast of 185,000 jobs added for next week's report, we already baked in that the layoffs from the bankruptcy of Yellow, which is a trucking company, the bankruptcy was uh, the catalyst of that bankruptcy was the strike by Teamster. And, and in fact, um, strikes happen just be, um, in a in a kind of like almost it's like a virus when people see left and right. Oh, you succeeded. Then let's do it. You know, um, but but in terms of um, how strikes and higher wages would translate to job, uh, the uh, you know, hiring and layoff, it's actually a pretty subtle and unclear thing. So higher wages raises the input cost of companies, raises the operating costs and decreases the profits. And so companies could feel more pressure to lay off workers as a result of higher wages. So, and in fact, if you look at the transcripts of earning calls in this quarter, you're already seeing that many of the reasons cited by companies as laying off workers is to reduce overhead costs, right? So I think the increase in the frequency of labor strikes, it doesn't really tell you whether workers in general are gaining. In fact, it produces a group of winners, the ones who engage in the strikes. But it also produces a whole bunch of losers, the ones who would be ultimately laid off because firms have to cut overhead costs. Are you seeing a lot of those laid off workers finding difficulties getting into new jobs? Where is the labor force participation picture right now? In terms of what happens in August, which is what we'll see next month, um, the laid off workers from Yellow will have trouble finding a new job because in that particular industry, the trucking industry, the freight uh, industry, that industry has undergone a pretty serious recession in the past year. And that's one reason why the company Yellow uh, went under, because it, it just has very uh, people are just not buying as much goods. So at a time when FedEx 
UPS, all these companies, car box shipments are coming down. I mean, you can see the car box shipment indicator, which is actually one of former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan's favorite barometer of the temperature of the economy. That indicator has been plunging since March. So there will be less need for workers to deliver boxes. And so I'm not optimistic about the rehiring prospect of the laid off yellow workers. And then on top of that, you have the UPS folks getting this wage bump. It means that these these companies, UPS, as I said, that at a time where their revenues are plunging, their profits are coming down, the operating costs are surging because of these labor strikes. They will have to cut the cost somewhere and there will be losers as a result of that. Well, I've got you here, Anna. I've got to touch on your analysis this week that got so much attention about the overall U.S. economy and about Barbenheimer and Blockbuster concert tours giving a pretty significant bump to U.S. economic growth. Who knew that Taylor Swift and Beyonce had this kind of power? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. But um, <laughs> what prompted that analysis was the uh, Atlanta uh, Fed GDP nowcast reading, which uh, ever a lot of people on Wall Street pay attention to this nowcast reading, and it was showing a 5.9 percent for third quarter GDP growth, which is out of the world uh, high, right? And we we noticed that uh, out of that three percentage point. Uh, was due to consumption, due to the really high July retails reading. And indeed, it was true. The retail reading for July was like shockingly high uh, at a time when you're seeing delinquencies on consumer loans surging. And, you know, on a, uh, at a time when a lot of firms uh, during the, the earning season this, this year talk about how volumes are down. So it was all very odd until you look at the individual uh, economic impact of these four cultural phenomena, right? So uh, AMC, the largest movie theater chain in the country, said that the Barbenheimer July was the best box office in their 105 years of op- operation. It's a once in a blue moon thing. And, and also Taylor Swift by itself is already a seismic event. On top of that, you get Beyonce happening at the same time. At each stadium, uh, the average stadium capacity for a uh, Taylor Swift concert is 54,000 people. And each of them on average spent $1,500 in attending the concert, which include the tickets, the hotel, buying food, fans, memorabilia, and and Beyonce is even. A, a, I estimate that Beyonce would produce an even bigger uh, impact because Taylor Swift's concert uh, tour is dialing down in North America uh, in in uh, in August and September, whereas Beyonce is just starting up. He she has over thirty concerts in the next two months. Each of the concert has an average capacity of 70,000, even larger than Taylor Swift. And people who attend Beyonce are slightly wealthier than Taylor Swift, probably because they're older. And so altogether, you produce this Olympic size kind of event. The economy is actually quite tremendous. Well, wouldn't it be something if Taylor Swift were the kind of data that the Fed depends on in data dependency? (laughs) Thanks for this, Anna. Great having you on with us. Happy to be here. 
Anna Wong is chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to London, where the FTSE reshuffle is about to take place. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Nathan Hager. Up later in our program, we'll take a look at the allegations of election interference against former President Donald Trump. But first, we go to London, where the cutoff arrives for inclusion in the FTSE 100. The benchmark UK index is due for a shakeup as the miners and oil majors that have dominated its ranks sink on fears of weakness in the Chinese economy. One bright spot, though, from Britain's high street may be set to make a return this quarter. And for more, we go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. At the close of trading on Tuesday, Britain's 100 biggest public companies will be selected to make up the FTSE 100. A bit like sports leagues, some face relegation, others promotion. One company that looks set to re-enter the benchmark index this week is a staple of the British high street. The grocery and clothing chain Marks & Spencer has seen their share price stage a comeback this year, but that's at the expense of others, including the home builder Persimmon, which has been a victim of higher interest rates and the downturn in the housing market. I've been discussing this with Bloomberg's UK retail reporter Katie Linsell and equities reporter Lisa Pham. I started by asking Katie what's driven the upturn in Marks & Spencer's fortunes. Really what we're seeing is an improvement on both sides of the business, so both in food and in home. And it's quite a long time coming for M&S because really we've been looking at years, even decades of the turnaround trying to take hold here at this retailer. Um, If we look at food firstly, M&S has really made a lot of effort to show that you can actually shop a full basket of food at M&S. And they've been trying to keep prices down as much as possible to really encourage shoppers to buy their basics with them and not just their sort of premium items. And then if we look at clothing, they've been making a lot of effort to try and fight the image of sort of dowdy, ill-fitting, unfashionable clothing and working on their own brands as well as attracting third-party brands. Lisa, let's go to you next. What will rejoining the FTSE 100 mean for M&S and for its shares? Yeah, so as Kaylee was saying, like M&S has done really well this year and it's been reflected in the share price as well. The stocks has risen more than 70% this year and so it's taken its market cap to more than £4 billion. So the advantage for stocks like Marks & Spencer to be in the FTSE 100 index is the fact that there are a lot of tracker funds which, as the name suggests, track the underlying index. So this means that these funds would have to buy the shares in order to replicate the performance of the index. There are also some actively managed funds. Um, and so with these funds, they may have a mandate to only invest in FTSE 100 companies in the universe of stocks that they look at alongside other benchmark indexes in other countries and other markets. So that would be another advantage to be part of this blue chip FTSE 100 index. What other changes might we see at the upcoming review? So we could potentially see Detra Pharmaceuticals, Hikma Pharmaceuticals and Diploma going in alongside M&S. And in terms of who might go out, it might be Aberdeen, Johnson Matthew, Persimmon and RS Group. 
but the final changes will be based on Tuesday's prices. And so if we look at RS Group as an example, as of Thursday morning, its market cap is slightly higher than Hiscos, which is also in the FTSE 100. So there's a chance that RS Group might actually stay in despite the indicative results saying that it might go out. So the market caps between RS Group and Hiscos are very close. What then should we be watching for uh, in the run-up to that deadline on Tuesday? Yeah, exactly. I do know some people who are constantly refreshing to see what the market caps of these two are going to be like. Um, so it's quite an interesting one to watch. And just as a reminder, Ocado had been set to exit the FTSE 100 index um, last quarter, but in the end it kept its spot and British land was removed instead. So it's still very much up in the air. It's interesting to, on that point about Ocado being, of course, a, a big online retailer, to go back to Katie Linsell for more on how the sector in general is facing as well. I mean, cost of living pressures has driven up revenues for many, but retailers, particularly supermarkets, coming under huge pressure about passing on price increases to consumers. How much have these businesses been able to benefit, as it were, from inflation? We did have the traditional big four UK supermarkets pulled in front of MPs to answer questions on this topic recently. And if we look at profits last year for the traditional big four, they actually fell. Um, Margins were, were tighter it's clear that supermarkets were under pressure from higher energy bills and also higher labor costs. And so, you know, they weren't making more money off the back of this. But still, you know, we're expecting quite big profits um, this year. Um, I think the supermarkets are really at pains to try and tell the consumer, you know, we are cutting prices wherever possible. Um, We're seeing almost sort of weekly press releases from the supermarkets showing that they are cutting the prices of of basics. Um, And the latest one is butter. And M&S is no different there. You know, they they have really been... um, almost at the forefront of trying to tell consumers, you know, we are keeping prices affordable, especially on on basics, you know, jacket potatoes, baked beans, trying to paint the image for the consumer that you can buy those items with us. It's not just the sort of premium ready meals. It's interesting to think about this because the question around pricing power for companies that are making consumer goods has very much been in focus because of the rate of inflation. The power that supermarkets have to increase prices is quite limited because these are very thin margin businesses. And that's a big debate, you know, looking at the sort of Unilevers of this world that have much higher margins versus supermarkets. And um, it's quite a, a fiercely fought debate between the supermarkets and their suppliers, you know, who's to blame um, when it comes to higher prices for consumers. Supermarkets do have their own brand items as well. And we've seen through the cross-living crisis consumers buying more and more of these own brand goods because they are cheaper. And so that's where the supermarkets are really taking control of the narrative and showing this is where we are cutting prices. We are seeing prices come, costs come through lower in certain commodities. And so we are able to cut prices there. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a sort of ongoing fierce debate between the, the big suppliers and the supermarkets. Katie, what about the competition between supermarkets or rather among supermarkets over this issue as well? Are, are customers moving to the, the cheaper end of the scale when it comes to where they're shopping? Absolutely. We've seen all through this period of really high inflation that Aldi and Lidl are really lucking out, if you like. They are gaining market share. Um, Aldi in September last year, so almost a year ago, uh, took the spot of the fourth largest grocer in the UK. They knocked Morrison's off that spot. Um, Morrison's have been much slower to be able to, to pass on that message to consumers that the prices are coming down, partly because Morrison's produce a lot of their own food. Uh, so they feel that impact of inflation much faster. 
Um, if we look at the sort of premium end uh, at Waitrose, for example, and Marks and Spencer's, I mean, Waitrose have, have been much slower to, to flag to consumers that the prices are, are that they are cutting prices, um, whereas Marks and Spencer's really sort of run away with the competition there at that premium end. Lisa Pham, thinking more broadly about the prospects for UK equities in the next year, what should we be considering when we consider where the new members of the FTSE 100 will go? Inflation seems to be quite sticky. We're dealing with a lot of higher interest rates. And so it does seem like the outlook is still quite gloomy for UK stocks. At the same time, we did have BlackRock strategists last week. They upgraded their view on UK stocks to neutral. So I guess it could be just a case of like wait and see in terms of like what happens with UK stocks. Thanks to Bloomberg's UK retail reporter Katie Linsell and equities reporter Lisa Pham. We will bring you coverage of the FTSE 100 reshuffle here on Bloomberg Radio and another piece of related data we'll be watching for in the coming days is the shop price index in the British Retail Consortium. We'll be looking out to see what it might tell us about the trajectory for the UK's stubbornly high inflation rate. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. All right. Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a wave of developments related to the allegations of election interference against former President Donald Trump. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Nathan Hager with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. It could be a week chock full of developments for former President Donald Trump in the case where he's accused of election interference in 2020. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and check in with Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Nathan. This coming Monday here in Washington, Judge Tanya Chutkin will hold her first hearing in the 2020 election case against former President Donald Trump, a hearing in which she is expected to announce a trial date. And of course, this will come just days after Trump was booked in Fulton County, Georgia, in a separate state case, though still related to efforts to overturn the result of the last presidential election. It's a lot to go through from both a legal and political perspective. So I've assembled a power team, Elizabeth Wasserman, D.C.-based Bloomberg legal editor, and Ryan Teague Beckwith, Bloomberg national politics reporter. So Elizabeth, just to begin, as I said, we're coming off a week in which it was the Georgia 2020 election case that was in focus. This one, this coming week, is a federal case in question. Can you just remind us how they are different? Yes. Um, the federal case was brought by Special Counsel uh, Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors on behalf of the, the Justice Department. And um, it's, it's looking at, uh, it's one part of the Special Counsel's uh, two-part investigation. You know, there's the one about the documents down in Florida, this one in uh, Washington is about uh, the 2020 uh, election and efforts to um, uh, overturn the uh, results and for, by Trump and, and uh, 
along with some co-conspirators, you know, to keep him in office. So uh, the case in Georgia is a state case, and it's a racketeering case. It alleges that there's a conspiracy involving, you know, 19 defendants, including uh, the former president, um, and that they conspired to, you know, deprive, you know, uh, the citizens of their 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 rightful vote. Yeah, it's a good point that there's actually 18 other co-defendants in the Georgia case. Where in Jack Smith's case, while there are other co-conspirators, it's just the former president that was charged. And of course, in Georgia, we learned this past week that Fonnie Willis is really trying. She's, of course, the district attorney, really trying to make this thing speedy. She asked for an October 23rd of 2023 trial date. When it comes to the trial date in the Washington case, though, which we expect to be decided this coming week, I believe Jack Smith's office, Elizabeth, had asked for a start date of January 2nd, so also going for speed here. I know the Trump team has pushed back on that. Do we have any idea which way Chutkin's going to lean on this? Well, she is someone who controls, uh, has a very good control over her court calendar, and I have a feeling since both sides are far apart, you know, uh, Jack Smith wants January 2nd. Uh, the, the Trump lawyers are suggesting, you know, after the 2024 election, they actually threw out a date, trial date of April 2026. Um, That's a big I gap. have to, yes, I, I think the, 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 you know, the better is among us. The, the odds might be greater that she sides more with uh, the, the, the prosecution's uh, start date. Um, you know, she has handled a number of January 6th, um, you know, uh, uh, cases involving the riot at the U.S. Capitol, and she's moved those along very quickly. She made it clear that she intends to move this along very quickly as well. So if she does so, Ryan, to bring you in here, depending on what date she ultimately lands on, if it's January or even really if it's just any time between January and, say, July, it could fall in the thick of primary season. So what's the political implication there for the former president, who, of course, is currently running to be president again? Well, there's two effects, and the first is really you can already see, and that is just time. Presidential campaigns, all, regardless of how much money they have, have only so much time and number of days that you can hold a rally on, number of days that you can fundraise, number of days you can go do TV interviews or whatever. Donald Trump is not campaigning at the level that he campaigned in 2016 or 2020. He's not holding as many rallies. He's not holding uh, as as many events. He's not doing as many interviews. And I think that uh, he did not should do the debate. I think that all of those are related to his legal troubles. I uh, I am personally think, and I don't, you know, I can't say this, so I, for <laughs> sure. But I personally think that one reason he may have chosen not to debate was that he would be asked about these criminal cases. And if I was his lawyer, I would have said, no, I don't think you should go on national TV and answer pointed questions from experienced reporters about your multiple criminal indictments. Uh, Because all of what you said, I mean, you'd have to give a Miranda warning at the beginning of the debate. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Of course, it'll be used against him. So uh, I think that may have been one reason for that. And it's definitely affecting his campaign schedule. So that's the first effect. The second effect is... I don't know that we know yet what the effect would be of him being convicted in Mm -hmm. one of these cases. It's very easy at this point for people to say, well, you know, I don't know. I still support him, whatever these cases are political. Uh, But if he's convicted by a jury, I think that that could potentially 
have more of an impact than we've seen from the indictments so far? Because that sends a signal that like, you know, 12 random people were pulled in and and shown the evidence and came to a conclusion. Um, I, I think that there are some voters who that might sway who haven't been swayed so far. But I don't know. So I don't know either of those things. But it, they're both big questions that we'll be watching. And we're all just going to basically have to wait and watch to find out. But if we're playing the hypothetical game, to Ryan's point, Elizabeth, if convicted, if he's convicted, theoretically, there's going to be a punishment, a consequence of some time. What's your sense as to whether or not prison time would ultimately be a reality for a former president of the United States? Oh, well, that is uh, the $64,000 question, isn't it? <laughs> um, that um, it. it, it it, it, it's hard to tell. First, these cases have to, you know, get to the trial stage. Um, they um, uh, and his his calendar is um, clogging up with uh, with trial dates. Yeah, you know, he's got one in a civil case, January fifteenth. He's got uh, uh, a trial in New York on the hush money charges, uh, and then falsifying business records, um, uh, March twenty fifth. He has a May 20th trial date in federal court in Florida on the classified documents case. And so I, I don't, I doubt that we are going to get through all of these cases before the next election Mm -hmm. and, you know, perhaps one or two, but you know, the, 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 it's an, it's an untried um, issue whether he, you know, there, there, I should say there's nothing. Um, there's nothing stopping him from serving if he's convicted. Mm. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents that. Um, I don't know if it'll get that far, though. I yeah. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, we're watching history be made in real time here, <laughs> yeah. and and while we don't know if that history is going to include time in prison for a former president, he did get a little time in jail in Fulton County this past week, Ryan, in which other history was made and that we all saw with our very own eyes a mugshot of a former president. Walk me through that significance. You know, um, if you talk to criminal defense attorneys, uh, they generally don't like the mugshot. And in a lot of jurisdictions, they no longer do them. I mean, the, the, the origins of the of the mugshot were that you needed some kind of record of what this person looked like in case they didn't show up. And there's arguments to be made that we didn't exactly need a mugshot of, say, Rudy Giuliani or mm. Donald Trump, that people know what they look like. Um, but, you know, they were applying a policy that they had in place. What a world. What a world. We live in. <laughs> Thank you for helping us make sense of it. Elizabeth Wasserman, one of our D.C.-based legal reporters and editors, I should say, here at Bloomberg. And Ryan Teague back with Bloomberg National Politics Reporter. And Nathan, we'll send it back to you. Thanks for that, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Week, and we'll look at some of the twists and turns ahead for Japan's economy. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. 
I'm Nathan Hager. Japan's economy is experiencing plenty of twists and turns, and it's leading to some volatility for investors in the country. For more, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Doug Krisner. Nathan, the Japanese economy has bounced back from the pandemic with surprising force. As an example, second quarter GDP growth 6%. That was double what economists had forecast. Now, in the week ahead, we're going to have even more insight. We'll get the official figures on retail sales, industrial production, and numbers on the labor market as well. Let's take a closer look at the story on the world's third largest economy with our Paul Jackson. Paul is team leader for Bloomberg's coverage of the economies in Japan in South Korea. He joins us from our studios in Tokyo. Thanks for making time to chat with us, Paul. So what are we going to learn next week? These numbers on factory output, I guess, as you refer to it in Japan, retail sales, the job market, how are they expected to come in? Uh, well, you reference the GDP figure there, and that 6% sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, that's the, the best result, really, since the rebound from the uh, pandemic. But ultimately, that figure is a bit on the flattering side because it was mainly driven by uh, exports, net exports. And if you look into the details, uh, consumer spending was actually down for the first time in three quarters. Now, that's not good if you're trying to uh, achieve inflation inflation and a sustainable uh, recovery in the economy. So we're still not sure how much this is kind of lurching forward or sputtering forward or whether this is like a consistent uh, recovery in the economy. So this data next week should help us get a bit more of a, of a feel for that. And, uh, you know, on that consumer spending point, I think that retail sales figure will be important. We've been seeing growth of, uh, you know, more than 5% mm. in recent months on a year-on-year -year basis. And I think we definitely want to see that continuing. Don't forget that these retail sales figures are inflated by uh, inflation itself. So they're not quite as good as... Uh, uh, as they look. So we seem to be describing a little bit of a bifurcation in the economy, right, where the exports uh, may be holding up reasonably well thanks to, and I'm thinking out loud here, a weaker currency. Domestic consumption may be a little concerning, and not just that the households may be holding back, but corporations as well. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is. And um, we will see some corporate spending plans uh, coming out at, at the end of the week. Uh, Ministry of Finance will collate uh, capital spending, those figures will be used to actually revise uh, the GDP figure in a couple of weeks. So uh, yeah, that will be of high interest to see whether companies are maintaining uh, you know, positive outlook. And let's face it, there are some clouds on the horizon. Obviously, we're in the middle of a, of a global slowdown. What's going on in, in China is of uh, great concern. You mentioned the factory output figures from Japan next week. Mm -hmm. Well, we're expecting those to be down as the factory sector kind of like uh, struggles to really boost output in this kind of fragile scenario. And I think one of the figures that will be of key interest actually won't be in Japan. It will be the PMI figures coming out of China. Ah. Uh, we've seen a contraction in the factory sector there in recent months. I think we're probably going to see more of that. And ultimately, if you don't have uh, the Chinese economy kind of firing on all cylinders, 
then the prospects uh, both for global growth and uh, uh, continued recovery in Japan's economy are limited. Paul, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for making time to help us understand what's happening where you are in Tokyo and Japan more broadly. Paul Jackson, team leader for Bloomberg's coverage of the economies in Japan and South Korea, joining us here. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Nathan. All right. Thanks, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and all the news you need to start your day. I'm Nathan Hager. Stay with us now. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.